Welcome to Human Factors Cast, your weekly podcast for human factors, psychology, and design. Hi, I'm feeling better, and I hope you are too. It's episode 248. We're recording this live on on, uh, June 16th, 2022. This is Human Factors Cast. I'm your host, Nick Rome, joined today by Mr. Barry Kirby. Hello. Hello, hello. Uh, tonight on the show, we got uh, we got some fun stuff for you. We're talking about a new study on society's readiness for AI ethical decision making. What does that mean? And we'll figure it out. Later, we're going to be answering some questions from the community about how to deal with know-it-alls, what to do in a horrible interview experience, and we'll discuss the merits of search engine optimization being user research. But first, we got some programming notes and a community update for y'all. If you're unaware, uh, this is Pride Month, and we are in full steam with our Pride content over here. Uh, I Shame on me. I don't have my merch, but we are still doing a fundraiser for you all, uh, or, or for the LGBTQIA plus community. Um, if you uh, become a patron this month, or if you buy our merch, any of those proceeds uh, from the merch and 30% of our Patreon earnings will go towards the Trevor Project. We talked about it last week on the show. That is still going. Uh, link to our Pride content is in the show notes. Um, this week, you can uh, hear, I guess it's out there now, our Human Factors Minute on designing for LGBTQIAP+. Uh, and that is guest read by Katie Sabo, one of our, uh, one of our uh, digital media lab I guess she's like the founding member of our of our digital media lab uh, research assistants. Um, also, um, next week, next Friday, June 29th, 10 a.m. Pacific, uh, join us live on LinkedIn. We're going to be doing another one of those wonderful HFES presidential town halls. We're going to sit down with Chris Reed, uh, who I understand Barry just had to sit down with. Uh, we'll also have uh, Carolyn Sumrick and uh, Tom Albin, and then friend of the show, Farzan Sassam Gohar. Uh, he's been on a couple of times. So uh, we'll have a wonderful um, cast of folks there to talk about HFES, the state of things. It'll be a great time. Barry, I want to know what's going on over at 1202. Well, Chris Reed clearly gets around everywhere because the interview with him is is still up and actually getting some really good traction, particularly some really good feedback here from the UK about just nice to hear what goes on across across the pond in HFES and some of the uh, similarities and differences. But um, coming up on Monday is another new interview, and actually we're diving into health this time. So Peter Brennan, who's a surgeon here in the UK, he's been really driving uh, human factors in in his surgery and, and his operating theatre and been doing a lot of stuff kind of off his own back. And so it was really good to just chat to him about what his drive is. So that goes live on, live on Monday, and I thoroughly recommend everybody goes and has a listen to it. Yeah, I finally got a chance to listen to that Chris Reed interview. Great job, Barry. Really appreciate it. All right, we know why you're here. You're here for the news, so why don't we go ahead and get into it? That's right. This is the part of the show where we read you a Human Factors news story, and then we talk about it in some capacity. Barry, what is the news story this week? So this week, researchers study society's readiness for AI ethical decision-making. So with the accelerating evolution of technology... Artificial intelligence plays a growing role in decision-making processes. Humans have become increasingly dependent on algorithms to process information, recommend certain behaviors, and even take actions on their behalf. A research team has studied how humans react to the introduction of AI decision-making. Specifically, they explored the question, 
Is Society Ready for AI Ethical Decision-Making? by studying human interactions with autonomous cars. Researchers observed that when the subjects were asked to evaluate their ethical decisions of either a human or an AI driver, they did not really have a definitive process for either. However, when the subjects were asked about their explicit opinion on whether a driver should be allowed to make ethical decisions on the road, the subjects had a stronger opinion against AI-operated cars. Researchers believe this is the rejection of a new technology that is mostly due to incorporating individuals' belief around society's opinion and how it's likely to apply to other machine and robots. Therefore, it would be more important to determine how to aggregate individual performances into one social preference. Moreover, this task will also have to be different across countries, as the research here has, has suggested. So, Nick, are you ready for AI to make ethical decisions in your life? You know, I saw this question that you posed to me. Are you ready for AI to make ethical decisions in your life? And I said, oh, I, I can answer this easily. I can't. I don't know. Um, I, I genuinely don't know. I, <laughs> I might be putting too much thought into this, but I, I genuinely don't know because what information does an AI agent have about a certain situation? that maybe I don't see. Mm -hmm. And so I understand the power of AI and I understand sort of where we're at with that. And AI can do some crazy, scary things and understand um, things that maybe we can't even see yet. And so to me, I don't know. That's a, that's an interesting question. And I think that's what we're seeing here with this, um, with this uh, story here, because I mean, a, a lot of these people probably have that same thought as I do, right? Uh, I would imagine, you know, many people kind of understand what AI can do and understand that it can see things more objectively than us humans can do. But because it's such a a, a newer technology, or I guess something that um, maybe we still don't know all the variables around it, how it makes these decisions, those type of things. Maybe that is why they're erring on the side of caution and saying, maybe the human should be the one in charge here. But Barry, I'm, I'm curious what you think. Um, I'll ask you the same question since it was such a curveball for me. Are you ready for AI to make ethical decisions in your life? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it depends. So I think this is really interesting because what is good ethical decision making? Because fundamentally, we're, we're now that we'll get into the experiments in, in a moment, but this is all about asking difficult questions. You're being asked to make choices that invariably lead to a level of hurt, pain, emotional outcome, things that really an AI doesn't understand. Um, they don't, an AI, when it makes a decision, an ethical decision or any sort of decision, doesn't have to live with the outcome. Uh, we do. And and I think that's where an interesting nuance is. The other thing, I think you kind of alluded to it, which is why I was sort of playing around with the idea, is the an AI will presumably know more than we do or can see all the data almost at face value more so than what, what we do. But also it can presumably, if it has time, it could actually work on different potential outcomes, whereas we react um now whether we do that in our head but if you have to make a split second decision you make a split second decision with the best information you have available at the time an ai can presumably process a whole lot like almost 
run scenarios almost in the blink of an eye and therefore make logical decisions uh, based on values, but not necessarily emotional decisions. And again, doesn't have to live with the outcome of what, of what is decided. The decision's made, it, it, it does it. So I, as much as I really want to see AI do a lot, of, a lot of stuff, and I think it can help us massively, I still think there is an element there of, I'm not sure. That was a long way around it. I don't know. Yeah, right. We're both, I don't know, on that camp. But let's let's talk a little bit more about sort of what actually happened in this experiment, because I think there's some nuance here that we want to capture in the way in which they sort of analyzed whether or not people were comfortable with AI making these ethical decisions. So let's talk about these experiments, right? Um, There were two of them. I'll kind of talk about the first one, Barry. I'll let you take the second one. Uh, In the first experiment, the researchers presented these human subjects with an ethical dilemma, right, that a driver might face. And we can talk about some ethical thought experiments in a little bit uh, through the lens of AI making these decisions and kind of you know, poke holes at it, see, see what we would come to in, in those situations, right? In the specific scenario that these researchers created, the car driver had to decide whether to crash the car into one group of people or another, right? So this is kind of your traditional trolley problem. Um, the collision uh, was completely unavoidable. It, it had to happen. And the crash would cause severe harm to one group of people, but would save the lives of the other group, right? Traditional trolley problem. Um, and, you know, coming back to sort of the results of the study, right, you mentioned this in the blurb, basically, when asking to evaluate the ethical decisions of a human versus an AI driver, they kind of, um, they didn't have a preference for either. But then, um, you know, when they were asked whether or not the driver should be allowed to make the decisions on the road, they had sort of a stronger opinion against the AI making that decision. And so um, in this situation, they said the driver, I guess, should be sort of responsible for determining which of these two groups the crash, uh, the, the car crashes into. Barry, you want to talk about the second experiment here? Yeah, so the second experiment was a bit broader in terms of understanding how people react to the debate over AI medical decisions once they become part of the social and political discussions. So they had two scenarios. One involved a, a hypothetical government that had already decided to allow autonomous cars to make ethical decisions. The other scenario allowed the subjects to vote in whether to allow autonomous um, cars to make them sort of decisions. And so when they were asked to to do this, again, as was sort of mentioned in the blurb, the the subjects were um, really keen that actually the um, they were uncomfortable with the it already been the already been made. That they wanted to um, allow the subjects to vote um, on what they wanted to play with. So, yeah, it's really interesting um, about how a lot of this comes out. It's the it it falls back to what it, why should we as as people have the only thing? And, and, and is there an element of blame culture here as well? Not culture, but is it is do we just want to be able to point the finger at somebody? And not just a thing, right? Um, so, yeah, I think there's. Um, it's a difficult. You, you, I thought this was going to be quite easy. <laughs> the, the more you think about this, and the more the deeper we get into it, I think it's. Um, yeah, it, it's. I, I've never thought about it quite with this twist on it before. You know, one one thing I do want to bring up about that second experiment that you talked about, right? I think the the purpose of that experiment was really to look at sort of um, how to introduce this concept of of having AI make these ethical decisions into a society, right? Is it something that is 
is mandated by the the government in in uh, charge or does it allow its citizens to make that decision um and and that's really interesting to me as well because you have sort of this uh, these these two schools of thought about uh you know how i mean theoretically right if, if you're talking about democratic societies you have sort of these elected officials who are making the decision on your behalf or do you let the general populace kind of vote for that as well um or you know even in in another case you have sort of a, a fascist dict- dictatorial um uh sort of government where you know the decision is solely made by one ruler right and so like there's different ways in which to introduce this into society it's just it's fascinating to me to to see how those might actually be implemented so um barry you and i can kind of slice and dice this like we normally do in terms of the uh the the all the different facets but i think um you know i i don't know do you have a particular one that you want to start with we can start anywhere i don't care Oh, good. Well, yeah. for me, I think I one thing that really I find really interesting in all of this, and it kind of does play into that into that last discussion you just had, is around the organisation and social, because for me, the the value of culture um, really hits into this quite strongly. Because you take the um, the, the the trolley problem that that, that that they've adapted, and the different variations on this are, you know, do you allow it to crash into a bunch of school children, you know, young young people, or an elderly person? And different cultures place different values on on the on on different people. So Western cultures tend to place more value on young people because presumably they've they've got more to live for. They're they're all out all out there. Um, whereas um, Eastern cultures tend to place a lot more value on on elderly people because they've got so much more experience and and they can you know they've got they've they've lived more lives so they've got all this uh, knowledge that they can pass on to people and um, and you know. Uh, improve the wealth of society uh, knowledge base that way so i think where ai is going to be quite interesting is how do you implement that in different cultures and in different societies in a way that is right and just and who is the right person to to talk about that um because then you also then take that next step into we already have a strong recognition that AI is is quite sexist. It's very male, you know, the it's it's very male dominated because the people who are coding them generally are male. And so it has that inherent uh, bias in it. And so if we're going to do this, how do we make sure that we um because you don't want to be culturally agnostic because culture is an is an inherent part of of everybody's fabric mm-hmm. so how do you make how do you make that work but then how do we make um how do we make the the organization that is developing this type of stuff um develop it in such a way that it does reflect you know gender bias and and them type of them type of attitudes so i think there is the that the, the, that bigger thing at play that really i think ai has got a long way to travel um in being able to help us solve that yeah, you brought up gender bias. It's not unique to sort of gender either. There's racial bias introduced as well. Mm-hmm. Um, AI, going to a person color their skin. Um, it's it's uh, an AI, I guess, right? So I don't know. There's there's a lot there. Uh, you know, the next thing that I want to talk about here is um. I guess sort of understanding 
what the AI's intent is, right? So you have sort of this decision that's being made by an artificial intelligent agent. And when you think about sort of why it that decision or how it that decision, we as a society, right, we're kind of transferring from that societal aspect now to kind of a training uh, mindset, if you will, right? We will need to be trained. We will need to understand what factors went into that decision, right? Especially when it comes to, uh, I think you mentioned it earlier, hurt um, and and sort of understanding, you know, if if uh, if an AI chose uh, my family, somebody else's ever going to be a new that went into that decision. Um, will I ever do that? I'd be pretty, but you know, and I think the other person on the other side that happened to them. And so this need to understand not the of uh, that it made but led up to There is definitely um, elements around that that is um, is stuff we've got to um, we've got to engage with the the other bit around the training. I get well, one thing I, I think is quite interesting when we you know we, when we started using um, Google Maps, for example, we wanted to drill in and understand where that decision making uh, was coming from, and you'd have that element there to to understand and drill into. Yes, you. you you, you set a whole lot of settings for that. Whereas now we um, now we are using Google Maps. You, you, you drop into it. You don't really care why it's made the decision that it's made. You don't care about the route. You just assume that the route it's given is right. And that's why I think in many ways the we will get to a point where we don't really um, don't really worry about um, why the decisions were made. We just we'll just understand what that they were made. We'll get to a level of trust, but we're gonna we're gonna be on a journey there. Um, I think the um, Martin Third has dropped in a, a point here in the um, in in on the, the stream that he's, he's listening through, where he said that the AI, AI will be underpinned by algorithms written by people. The benefit as he, he sees it is the outcome will be consistent and acceptable at a societal level, even if it's different from individuals' choice. And that goes back into the organizational things that we were talking about earlier, which is, yeah, that, that that's almost de it's democratic decision making. That um, everybody would, you know, if everybody's bought into it. But this then leads itself into what you were just been talking about: is as long as people understand how that decision making was made, um, which you can argue we might struggle with because you know people don't actually know how decision made decisions are made on our behalf at the moment anyway mm -hmm. even before ai you know with the the way that government is so yeah no i think that's um um very yeah it's 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 going to be fundamental isn't it to to be able to exploit it yeah so here's another piece to that puzzle too right so imagine if you know we talked about sort of uh, incorporating ai into a government or into a society what if they also sort of voted on not only whether or not to have an AI uh, make those ethical decisions, but also what decisions that AI could make? This is kind of getting at that underpinning of, of uh, you know, AI by people 
right? So if you had a society vote like, okay, should AI be allowed to vote whether or not, um, you know, or, or I guess the method and way in, in which um, an AI would triage in, in a healthcare setting, right? Are we voting on that, you know, then, then uh, but then how do you get to that point of all the nuance of, you know, it's not just a simple decision. There's a lot of information that goes into that. Do you have sort of healthcare professionals then that lobby for one versus the other? Or do you have, you know, the society kind of representing what the best decision would be from their perspective? It's it's a whole interesting twist on sort of this, this AI, right? Like I'm thinking like piecemeal AI where you just plug in pieces to this AI system that ultimately makes all the ethical decisions for you. And uh, I, I don't know. It's, it's, uh, it's fascinating. You know, I think we could go into some of the separate industries or, or uh, sectors to kind of talk about, you know, what, what some of these, um, what some of these decisions could be. I don't know. Do you want to do that? Yeah. I mean, I, uh, an easy one for me to pick up would be the whole, whole defense bit. Cause I mean, the, it happens kind of all the time already that, um, um, you know, a decision needs to be made about, um, I guess, what people would um, lovely call kinetic effect, i.e. who lives and who dies in the in this type of thing. And at the moment, we have very strong policy uh, decisions there that that is a human decision. That is something that um, somebody has to take responsibility for. But is there something there about, um, from an AI perspective, we can make better quality decisions um but again what happens when it goes wrong um and it goes back to that sort of that that blame piece i think fundamentally when we're talking about taking uh taking somebody's life um no matter how bad it is there is a, a level of responsibility there that we you know ethically morally feel like that should not just rest in um some sort of um um data stream so what yeah, do you yeah. do? You, have you got a particular one that you would uh, pick up and highlight? I mean, the healthcare example is really interesting because you have sort of this triage aspect, right, that we kind of mentioned uh, a little earlier. You have um, sort of understanding who gets treated first, who uh, who gets seen first um, based on not only factors like, uh, you know, who's who's easily able to be treated or whose injuries are more severe who's more likely to live who's not right you have all this stuff um so that's one interesting application then you also have sort of um you know making the the difficult decisions uh whether or not somebody's in a coma or um in a vegetative state or anything like that right you have sort of these really tough decisions um or whether or not to even go forward with a surgery you know, you have AI kind of looking at all that stuff. But then you have, <clears throat> even on the other uh, side of things, you have AI doing wonderful things in healthcare too. You have AI looking at, um, you know, scans and diagnostics of individuals who are picking up uh, diagnoses before healthcare professionals, professionals can even see them themselves. And so there's, you know, all these different types of, ways in which AI could in, uh, integrate with healthcare. But when you talk about those tougher decisions, right, um, you know, it's like, do you, do you, how, how do you sort of assign, because really we're talking about who lives, who dies. And, and uh, you mentioned that in defense too, right? Like that's, 
It's the same thing. It's the same thing. Who who's who's responsible for that? But I think the, there's I guess the subtle difference is that in the healthcare setting, the AI would make a decision based on the overall capability and capacity of the healthcare system. So yes, you might not um, you might make a decision based on the resources available, based on the capacity and capability of the surgeons available or the nurses available. Um, and so it's it's how can I guess it must be making it would be looking at it right. How many people can we save as opposed to you know what rather than focus on this one person you rather than focus on this one person you might say two people and things like that which it it's it's the same it is the same outcome but for i guess from a very different perspective the because the other one where we're talking about about this as well i guess is is in um in the criminal justice system mm-hmm. so when when we're looking at the use of ai the i've sat as a as a magistrate as a, as a judge um where you have to make decisions on people's guilt and innocence. And that is a very human thing. Or there's very, in many ways, it was, it's a very emotional thing to sit through because you, you have to hear all the evidence, you have to weigh it all up, interpret whether you believe that person is telling the truth or not, and then come to a decision. Um, and then that decision has consequences because they either go to jail or, well, it's in the UK, they go to jail. And in the US, you have slightly more extreme versions um, in certain areas. So it is that, you know, could you could the AI make better, cleaner decisions in many ways if you take out all that emotion and just nail it on the facts? Um, and then, you know, you that is that judge-jury executioner piece. Um, again, and would it make, would it make decision-making in the defend in the justice system quicker because you know the facts are the facts are the facts um and and would it make it more just that's that's the other question too right it's like you have sort of yeah i mean i don't know criminal justice is is really hard to talk about especially when you think about sort of you know a fair trial by your peers and there's a lot of issues with criminal justice in general and i mean i i wonder how much of those problems would be solved by ai i don't know if many of them because you have systems that are in place but you know you think about all that stuff and um which roles does it actually play does it actually play sort of the does it play the judge does it play the jury or does it play the executioner um, and and when we say executioner, I'm I'm almost thinking about it, like having AI sort of step in and say, well, what is an appropriate punishment that would you know sort of have the most likely impact for a successful recovery for this person, right? So like that's that's kind of what I'm thinking from that perspective, and I think from that perspective, it's probably a great application. Um, but when you when you start you know applying it as a judge or a jury, then I think you're maybe getting a little bit more dicey in terms of sort of what society at large is comfortable with. Well, again, because you're absolutely right. This is the justice system is more about society um, because it's society's rules. That's what the whole justice system is. It's um, it's about what is acceptable and what is not within the function of society um, and them social rules. Somebody breaks them social rules that have been codified. Um, and it, 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 you know, it, it it, then the the judge is there to say yes, you have definitely broken them rules. The jury is there to um, um, to do that, and as you say, the executioner um, is there to extract some sort of um, recompense on that. 
Uh, a, a really interesting quote that when I was doing my my training at the time was justice is not about theoretically justice is not about rehabilitation justice is about extracting a penalty from the person who has broken the law um, for the victims um on behalf of the victim sorry um and i think yeah it's interesting that that um that actually out a lot of this um we do forget the victim's role in it all um and what would this provide better outcomes for for a victim um i don't know i don't know whether it would yeah no that that's a great point right because maybe maybe there's some system in place that that would uh not only be better for uh the the you know the recovery but also isn't an appropriate sort of uh sort of punishment that would be satisfactory to the to the victim as well right good point you know, I do want to talk a little bit about surface transportation because that's kind of what they're talking about here. Um, they're, they're talking about sort of uh, the trolley problem. And when you th- think about uh, the example in in the experiment that they ran, right, you're looking at the classic trolley problem. And I, 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 I do want to talk about sort of autonomous vehicles. And I think this is one one place in which sort of we're already looking at this issue, and I think that's why the researchers chose to focus here on this area, because this is already out there, right? You already have AI systems. And whether or not they're making the correct choices, they are making decisions now that are impacting lives. Um, and yeah, how do we just build responsible systems, all that stuff? I, I don't know. I, I just wanted to bring that up because that is happening now. And it's one of those things where, uh, you know, we, we need to need to figure it out <laughs> quickly. Well, and I think this is, again, it's a, it's a really good study from this perspective because we've never had, that I can think of, such a rapid deployment of technology that is that is properly groundbreaking, game-changing, but potentially lethal in in all at once and it's hit we've talked about ai and and being able to um to do different things and i think we've all had this idea that we we know that you know aircraft are being flown um by uh by autopilots and they could have a, a varying levels of autonomy in there um and artificial intelligence making decisions that's fine because they're up in the air they don't affect us on a day-to-day basis um trains could be similar so things that are very highly controlled um having that ai the thing that has made a distinct difference is being able to get a piece of AI doing stuff for you in your hands. Um, and this is where the um, this is where we sort of hit this with, you know, people can drive around utilizing AI. Um, we need to deal with this right now. And are we happy with our road space being used as largely a um, an agile test bed? Um, because that's what it, that's what it is at the moment. You know, we've got AI doing its thing, and it's making mistakes. Not many, when you compare to the other accidents that go on in the in the grand scheme of things, but they are still being made. Um, and this, I think, that's possibly what makes people feel more uncomfortable than anything else. Yeah, let's uh, let's throw a couple ethical thought experiments out here, um, just to see kind of how we might think about AI in society and culture, um, and how it might approach some of these issues. Right, so. We talked about the trolley problem. That's pretty, pretty uh, ubiquitous, right? So let's let's look at the experience machine. Have you have you heard about this one, Barry? The experience machine. So so there's a uh, 
there's a book, Anarchy, State, and Utopia. Um, and, and basically, we're looking at an ethical system that places pleasure above all other values. So the, the, the concept here is that there's a machine that could give you whatever experience you wanted at any moment. Um, and I guess the, the first question is, would you plug into a machine like this? Would everyone do it? If everyone uh, was plugged in, who would run it? Those types of questions, right? And so, um, you know, this, this whole concept of wanting to plug into the experience machine... Um, you know, I, I think this is a little bit more fun to think about because I, I, I don't know, I'd plug into it, but then would, you know, would it become addicting? I don't know. Probably. Um, yeah, I could, I could have every podcast episode where my internet doesn't suck. Uh, and, and, uh, that's the experience I'm living, but you know, I, I don't know. Would you, would you plug into something like this? And then how would an AI system sort of, um, work with this in, in society, right? This theoretical, but yeah yeah um would i plug in um see my gut answer is yeah of course you would because why wouldn't you want to experiment that sort of thing but then how do you it's almost that addictive thing how do you know that you will be able to then unplug um because i think all the idea of um pleasure is only pleasurable because it doesn't happen all the time you can't have unlimited pleasure all the time or maybe i'm just doing things wrong i don't know um but you know what i mean there's um you there's a, I think there's a whole thing where you have that the whole yin and yang um, pleasure pain thing because you re- you recognize the good stuff because the bad stuff if you have nothing but the good stuff then that it dulls out um, so I don't know interesting um, I'm okay go <clears throat> Here, here's a better example what about the utility monster so basically when we talk about a monster here we're talking about AI right and so, so this um. This experiment, this thought experiment, really considers maximizing pleasure, happiness, or good as the highest moral goal, and they are sort of set at the core of this AI's thought process, right? So we're looking at um, we're looking at the AI's uh, ability to focus on the consequences of actions, and the AI would be set for maximizing utility towards good in the world, right? And so um, basically we're we're imagining an ai that gets a hundred times more good out of things um than being a human ever could right so or or letting humans make these decisions than they could ever um than they ever could right so for example um you know a human eats a chocolate chip cookie uh would it taste uh you know a hundred times better to you um if uh if ah this is a bad example I'm trying to adapt it from another thing, but here, it, 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 think about uh, sort of like, um, you know, if, if you made a choice that was selfish to you, but it was maybe not so good for others in the world, wouldn't AI step in and correct your action to sort of make sure that there's more good in the world based on, on your decision? Is it really a decision at that point, right? It, it's a, it's a interesting thought experiment. Yes, it's the... Um does the group exist only because the actions of the individuals or does the group exist because the actions of the group and it's only for the good for the group? Yes. The, um, the, the problem with thought experiments is they make you think. Yeah. Which is, which, which is, which is a bit of that. Um, I mean, I actually on that, I'm, I'm a great believer in that the, you know, groups are made up of, of people. So without people making individual decisions, you don't get a group. Um, but you clearly do because we've seen so many examples of um, of how that 
so doesn't work. We're like just right through COVID. Um, you've seen the examples of groups of people doing crazy things, yet everybody individually said, oh, why would you do that? Um, you know, initially we went through a whole piece of um, uh, things happening where people, where you couldn't buy like toilet paper and stuff because people were um, uh, bulk buying stuff um, because because they could, because they thought it was everything was going to go. So if everybody just left it alone, it would have been fine. But no, we act together as a, as a group, like sheep, if you will. All right. Uh, any other loose rounds on this uh, article before we uh, go ahead and get into our little break? Um, no, I think it's it's a really interesting one. It's, it, I like this one because it's it's made me think a lot more than I anticipated it would make me think. Because um, normally we've, we've been around these sort of AI discussions for quite a while. But then sometimes you just get a topic that makes you think of things in a slightly different twist, different way. So, you know, well, well done for everybody who voted it in to to be the story this evening. Yeah. What about you, Nick? Yeah. Uh, no, no other closing thoughts from me. Uh, thank you to our patrons this week for selecting our topic, and thank you to our friends over at Hiroshima University for our new story this week. If you want to follow along, we do post the links to the original articles on our weekly roundups on our blog also join us on our discord for more discussion on these stories we're going to take a quick break i'm going to reset my router and then we'll be back to see what's going on in the human factors community right after human factors cast brings you the best in human factors news interviews conference coverage and overall fun conversations into each and every episode we produce but we can't do it without you the human factors cast network is 100 listener supported all the funds that go into running the show come from our listeners our patrons are our priority, and we want to ensure we're giving back to you for supporting us. Pledges start at just $1 per month and include rewards like access to our weekly Q&As with the hosts, personalized professional reviews, and Human Factors Minute, a Patreon-only weekly podcast where the hosts break down unique, obscure, and interesting Human Factors topics in just one minute. Patreon rewards are always evolving, so stop by patreon.com slash humanfactorscast to see what support level may be right for you. Thank you, and remember, it depends. Yes, huge thank you as always to our patrons. We especially want to thank our honorary Human Factors cast staff patron, Michelle Tripp. Patrons like you keep the show running. You keep the lights on over here. What does Patreon actually pay for? Well, this month, you know, like I said, if anyone wants to become a patron, 30% of your uh, proceeds this month will go to the Trevor Project uh, for Pride Month. But normally what it does, what it helps pay for here is kind of uh, the monthly hosting fees that we usually use to keep our podcast up. That costs money. I don't know if you know that. Cost money. It's not free. You can't just put a podcast out there. You got to pay for it. Anyway, it does that. Uh, we have annual website domain fees that we got to take care of. We have um, the capability for that website behind the scenes that we have as well. Uh, and, uh, you know, we got to pay for that somehow. We have automation behind the scenes handling a lot of stuff. Um, and, you know, products and services to help us with the audio and video production. And above all, it kind of helps with uh, my ability to get good internet, although mm, not tonight. We'll see. Anyway, uh, yeah, it, it pays the bills. It keeps the lights on. Thank you. Appreciate the support. Let's get into this next part of the show. It came from. It came from. That's right. This is the part of the show we like to call It Came From. This is where we search all over the internet to bring you topics the community is talking about. Any any topic is fair game for us to sit here and talk about as long as it relates to the field of human factors. Uh, and uh, wherever you're watching, if you find these answers useful, give us a like to help other people find this content. 
All right, we got three tonight. This one, this first one here is by uh, Mystery to Me, a UX research subreddit. How to deal with know-it-alls. Um, they go on to write, I'm new to a team where a few of us were hired at the same time. One of them, a male, former engineer, seems to dominate all meetings with his input on uh, how to change processes or random things in the organization. As a new employee, I really wouldn't have the confidence to come across that way trying to change things. They've been that way forever since I feel like it comes off as I'm, I know better. Um, than everyone else. Uh, I'm, I'm really just trying to learn in this first month on my job. He also often brings up his past experience during meetings. I feel like it sidetracks us a lot. The manager doesn't really do a good job of keeping the meeting focused, so it ends up going for an hour with him, mansplaining on how to do things or how things should be done. I try to be more vocal in the meetings, but he seems just to interject again right away. How do you deal with this behavior? I'm also wondering if this type of behavior is actually rewarded over my approach of keeping quiet until I learn more, or should I try to be more vocal too? And how would one do that without coming across as arrogant? Barry, what are your thoughts on this? Uh, how, how do you um, how do you approach that situation? Oh, it's it's difficult, and because because some people do this as a as a defensive behavior. So particularly with new people coming to organizations, they um, and I think probably it is probably more of a male issue than a than than a female issue, where you have to f- you feel like you have to go and prove your worth as soon as you possibly can. So you end up either being quiet or you end up talking an awful lot and basically trying to justify your existence. Um, my approach to this, because I've seen it quite a lot, unfortunately, one way or another, is. If you see how I mean, have a quiet word with people um, and sort of just help them reflect on themselves about what it is that they're doing. Um, because the other killer part of this really is that actually quite often this 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 type of behavior can end up going quite well rewarded because there seem to be more um, they the, if managers, particularly if there may be managers um, who don't necessarily are not all over the brief, and they're they're literally just managers, um, you know, people managers, not technical managers. Um, if they don't really know what's going on, then they think, oh, well, actually, this person being really vocal, clearly, then they know what they're talking about. When we all know that that isn't necessarily the case. Um, if you haven't got a manager who is good at basically getting everybody to to put forward their their point of view and that type of thing, we we can suffer with this. So really. It's a difficult thing to do, but I would suggest a cup of tea, a cup of coffee, um, have a chat with them, and somehow, it, and it's not an easy thing to do. Um, I've, I I don't have a, a playbook of being able to go and start that conversation, but it is most people, when you point out that behavior to them, do tend to be a bit more reflective, particularly in our domain. Um, but it, I, I, I've seen this sometimes before, and yes, it's it's not an easy thing to deal with because you feel like you're being, particularly if you've been there a while, you feel like um, they're coming and stamping in on your ground. You feel like um, you're being let down, um, particularly if the managers aren't supporting you in that way. So I feel for you, Nick. What about you? Have you have you dealt with had to deal with this before? Oh, certainly. Um, yeah, this is this is a tough one uh, because for me, as a new employee, I'm typically the quiet one, and so. I'm I'm very much in like information absorption mode and and so I don't feel comfortable talking about things I don't understand the exception is asking for question or asking questions about those things that I don't understand. Now I I will say um you're right Barry this this behavior 
oddly does go rewarded in some cases where, you know, um, you do have sort of the manager that is looking at the the ability to contribute to a conversation rather than the content of that contribution. And so in this case, what I would recommend for somebody in this situation is to go to that manager and say, hey, look, you know, I've, you know, I, I just, I don't think that this person is, is contributing anything meaningful. And I feel like a lot of our conversations go off topic. Um, and, and you don't even have to bring up the person. Just say, hey, I think, you know, our, our conversations could be a little bit more guided, you know. And I, I have concerns about the direction in which some of these, uh, you know, conversations get off the rails. And that might, you know, subtly nudge them to um, to sort of rein in the conversation as it does get off the rails with people like this. I don't know. That's kind of where I'd start if it ultimately becomes a huge problem. You know, obviously call them out by name and, and uh, tell the manager so-and-so is doing this. And then from there, you might want to call it out in the meeting to just say, hey, can we table this discussion and get back to the thing at hand? People tend to be pretty receptive when you call it out in the middle of a meeting. Um, but I would go the other options first. Uh, any other closing thoughts on that one? Yeah, I guess part part of it is actually I've probably been half of this person. <laughs> um, just so I've certainly had them elements where I've been, I've gone into a new role, felt completely out of my depth, and you do feel like you have to um, uh, do some of that. But I had, I, I, it, this was like really, really early, early on in my career. Um, and I did have somebody pull me aside and say, you know, you are worth it. You are fine. You you don't need to shout your mouth off all the time. Um, and that really early on was was actually quite a, a good learning experience. I'd, I like to think I wasn't going quite as far as as what this was. This story was um, alluding to, but sometimes maybe you don't necessarily understand everything, what's going on inside that person. I think So I think there's probably two, possibly two levels there to, to think on as well. I love that that person told you you don't have to run your mouth, and yet you are a regular on this podcast, and you have your own. Anyway, just a <laughs> just a little observation. All right, this next one here is uh, is is uh, filled with some fun language, but I'm going to censor most of it. Horrible UX interview experience. This is by Wishing for Nuggets on the user experience subreddit. I had a bad interview with a senior UX designer at a company. Um. Jeez, how do I how do I truncate this? Apparently, he's an engineering grad that makes uh, films in his free time, which is great. Except he himself has just a year's experience in UX, uh, which I found out after the interview by stalking him. And after that experience, uh, and that experience also includes a course from Udemy and UX fundamentals. I don't know. It seems ridiculous that I'm being interviewed by someone who themselves is starting out in UX. Not to mention the condescending tone. I was about uh, I was talking about inclusive design, um, and he cuts in and tells me that's great, but it's not relevant to UX at all. I'm wondering where to put you since your UX is very quote unquote basic. That's what he said after looking at my case study and portfolio. Uh, they advertise this as a UX and UI design role, but the guy says no. We're looking for a UX researcher, which is very different. Um, he's asking me stuff like, "Do you know what an artboard resolution is?" I'm genuinely questioning because i have four years of visual design experience anyway uh, is this normal am i missing something or I, i'm genuinely so annoyed and upset right now i have picked this because um this post made me annoyed and upset uh <laughs> barry how do you go about an interview where it might not be going in your favor or your way or 
anything like that um oh it's it's this is again this this isn't easy because i've been there a few times where you turn up thinking you're going for you're going for a job it's been advertised as as a, as a certain job and and it isn't you sort of get there and they're like actually no we're really looking for this and then you you immediately get into that thing oh have i made a mistake here or somebody somebody told me wrong? and then you realize i mean we i guess we see it in human factors quite a lot in that you get interviewed by somebody because you're, you're you know if you're going to a role where possibly you're the only hf person in there, you've been managed. You've been done by a senior person. Uh, you've been interviewed by a senior person who's heard of human factors and has maybe done some sort of cool course once in like was, was a long time ago, but knows all about it when they probably don't. Um, it's not easy, um, but also it is kind of incumbent on you to realize that the interview process is a two-way process um that if if what they're giving you is such bad vibes then um then you probably don't belong there that's you know your evaluation of it is if it give you such a horrible experience move on find another one um i think there is a maybe an expectation that every interview that we go to should be perfectly aligned to us and they you know it should be um everything on that on on the other side of the table should be absolutely perfect thrown our way and that's just not the case and it might be that people are interviewing because they don't really know what they're talking about there um or they might think that you know as what sounds in in this case that they've got a bit of an inkling of knowledge and because of company politics they're in a position that um, they have some power of, of of a hiring and stuff um yeah they might be coming out with stuff that you think is not right um but quite frankly i I'm, I'm in that kind of suck it up and move on um find the job that is right for you find something that you really want to uh want to go with um you owe them nothing um go and find that go and find the next bit i think that you might have something slightly different to say nick let's break it down you have good interviews you have bad interviews this post made me angry not at the interviewer <laughs> I look like I don't know the thing that I want people to take away from interviews is to learn from them. In this situation, this person has clearly had a bad interview from their perspective. Um, they have been interviewed by someone that they think is not qualified. You also don't know their full story. You've stalked them on the internet to find out what their sort of experience in UX was versus understanding, you know, what their job roles were and past, you know, uh, past work experience. I like, I don't know. I, to me, it just seems like a little um, uh, pretentious. The point here is that if you do have one of those interviews where maybe there wasn't a communication uh, about what exactly that role was, in this case, they were looking for a designer role, but the, the company hiring was looking for a researcher role. And so, you know, is that something that you ask as a clarifying question before the, the uh, interview actually starts? That's, you know, a learning experience there. You can that, that's a question that you can ask in the organizing state. Uh, uh, and then, you know, I think there's um. There's ways to handle it in the moment, too. Um, if you're asked a question or if somebody's combative with a um, <laughs> a statement that you made, 
you know, that's another way in which you can evaluate the people that you're going to be working with, right? You said it's a two-way street. It is. You're evaluating the people that you're going to be working with. And if somebody's, you know, combative against something that you're saying, or um, maybe it's you. Maybe you're not listening to what they're saying. I don't know. I just think there's there's something that you can learn from this. And, um, you know, if that thing is that there are some good interviews and some bad interviews, and that's the thing that you learn, it's the thing that you learn. I don't know. that. It's not it's not uh it's not rocket science, I guess. Any other thoughts on that one, Barry? Well get over yourself. Um, <laughs> All right. Kind of thank you. <laughs> no, not you, obviously. No, 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 I know, I know. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. All right. Uh last one up here tonight. Uh is search engine optimization user research. This is by uh Rejuvenates on the user experience of Reddit. I did a redesign for a website. SEO research was involved. I looked at competitors in the area and keywords, ways to improve the homepage experience. I also looked at reviews. How do I display this information on my portfolio next to my design? So is search engine optimization user research, Barry? If so, why is it? And then also, how do you... This is a separate question. How do you sort of... um, put that work experience that might not have direct interaction with users but still benefits them into portfolios so i think it is user research um because it's all about how you're you know fundamentally to be able to use a website effectively people are going to get there in the first place right um and so i, I do um and have done for a long time counted it as what, what uh, one of the fundamental a pre-step and a post-step um when when we do this type of work um how do you put it as part of your portfolio that's a slightly different question and it's more of a narrative view it's about how you implement the process why you implemented the process um because fundamentally you you know you're trying to under, put yourself um into that um into your user's mindset before they even get onto your um onto the site that you're designing so it's 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 about context it's it, you know it goes into some of them them intangibles um to, I wouldn't be able to comment, I don't think, about how to put it into that portfolio piece because from that perspective, I've never done it. Um, I've always, you know, we do it as part of reporting. We do it as part of um, of that piece. Um, so I wouldn't, how to how to showcase it in the best way to show that you could do it. Um, I would be struggling with, Nick, what do you think? Yes. Uh, search engine optimization is user research. It's understanding what terms, what... Um you know, sort of things are going to be most relevant to people before they even get to the place, like you said, right? It's it's kind of understanding the user before you even get there. And um really it's your it's your best approximation of sort of what that user needs to get to that thing that you're working on, right? And so if you're looking at competitors, you know, I I just also uh, along the same lines, I'd look at competitive analysis as user research. Um, you are looking at other tools, industry standards that are out there, you doing similar things to you that you know. Obviously, users of those platforms might have thoughts and feelings about too. And you can find user research everywhere. I think there's you know a lot of different places in which you can find user research that a lot of people don't think about, right? Um, like I don't know if you're making a product like. Uh, Google Sheets and you go and and research an Excel form, you're going to get a lot of the same stuff. Like, that's, you know, competitive analysis is totally user research. So when you look at other products and what SEO they're using, totally. Um, Now, when you're looking at uh, 
things like reviews also same thing you're looking at uh, what are some of the key terms that they're using what are some of the um you know their thoughts around the product don't know there's not too much information here but in terms of displaying on a portfolio now this is a little bit tricky uh from you know like a research perspective or human factors perspective a lot of times we do job talks in which we talk about a process you mentioned narrative it totally is with a designer it's a little bit trickier but i think you know throw together a graphic of all the things that went into the search engine optimization um that might be a good place to start and you can talk through it during your interview um so i don't know it, it, you know ultimately uh if you came up with a design from search engine optimization or you know it somehow played into each other i think that might be a good way to go put it right next to it i don't know uh any other closing thoughts on that one no, I think, as you quite rightly say, visualize your process um, and show how things feed in. That's probably the best, certainly in terms of that display, but will be the way I would do it from that from that point. Yeah. All right. Let's let's uh, let's get into this last part of the show. We like to call One More Thing. It's where Barry and I just sit here and talk about One More Thing. Barry, what's your One More Thing this week? Well, I'm going to go with One More Thing because that's what it's called. It's not called Two or Three Things. Um, the I spoke a while ago about the fact that I'm getting an EV and this is like months ago now um but apparently it's coming next month and i'm very excited so excited i had the car charger installed today and so it's now like a (laughs) it's a thing pointing out of the wall on on the side of my house just teasing me waiting for the um for the car to turn up so it feels like we're making progress so i've got about a month to go and then i don't know we could maybe go on a guided tour of my new car when um as a, as, a, as a live experiment or something. When, when That'd be fun. Went. Yeah. We could do a live sort of test of um, live, live usability review on like, <laughs> the world. How scary would that be? That'd be great. So, I love it. Uh, contrary to popular belief, I am also going to do just one more thing here. Uh, I, I do have a fun story, though. If you are listening... And if you want to watch something funny, go watch our pre-show because I talk about uh, a color scheme thing. It's funny. You should go watch it. <laughs> anyway, I have I have something I'd like to talk about today, and it is a chair related thing. So I don't know. Um, people who watch the show again, another visual thing, but people who watch the show might notice I'm a couple inches taller today because I have fixed my chair. Now, my chair before uh, had uh, an issue with. Um, the gas piston that lifted and lowered it actually broke off the weld underneath the chair and so my chair was wobbling from side to side and so as i was sitting here podcasting with you barry you know i'd be like you know trying to stabilize myself um with with just my legs and arms and it was bad and it was like that for weeks um and ultimately i ended up bungee cording my chair together so that way it wobbled less still wobbled anyway didn't realize that uh, this this might be completely obvious to some of you, but uh, chair replacement parts are a thing that you can buy. <laughs> and so yes. I, so I bought I bought replacement parts for the under piece and and made it heavy duty so that way uh, it, it will support my heavy booty. And then um, you know I also got a a piston and the first piston I got was way too tall. Um, in fact, I was sitting uh, probably you know if you're if you're looking at uh, the screen. Right now, I'm in the middle of the screen. It was probably putting my head up here. Nice. Um, my knees were at my keyboard at the lowest setting. It was really bad. So I had to uh-huh. order a replacement part. And I had got these fun wheels um, that are like rollerblade wheels for the chair. I don't know if I have mm-hmm. them. I think I have them. And um, 
Yeah, they're like rollerblade wheels for your chair, but these added height to it as well. And so even with the new piston, the shortest piston I can find, and those wheels, um, you know, I was still looking at my 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 thighs kind of pushing up my keyboard. And so ultimately I had to make my chair stationary um, by removing the wheels, putting in those little tiny stops. So that way it, uh, you know, all that stuff. Anyway, that's my one more thing this week. Um, I'm happy to have a working chair. That's it. Uh, and that's yeah. it for today, everyone. If you like this episode and want to hear Barry and I talk about our AI girlfriends, since we're talking about AI, I'll encourage you to go listen to episode 240, where we talk about how AI might be able to provide companionship for others. Comment wherever you're listening with what you think of the story this week. For more in-depth discussion, you can join us on our Discord community. You can always visit our official website, sign up for our newsletter, stay up to date with all the latest Human Factors news. If you like what you hear, you want to support the show, you can leave us a five-star review. That is free for you to do. You can uh, tell your friends about us. That's also free for you to do and uh, really helps us grow. And if you want to, consider supporting us on Patreon. Again, 30% of our proceeds this month are going to the Trevor Project. Uh, and as always, links to all of our socials on our, uh, can be found on our website and are in the description of this episode. Mr. Barry Kirby, thank you for being on the show today. Where can our listeners go and find you if they want to talk about the trolley problem? If you want to talk about that, you can find me on Twitter and other socials at Baz underscore K. Or come and listen to some of my interviews at 1202 Human Factors Podcast at 1202podcast.com. As for me, I've been your host, Nick Rome. You can find me on Discord and across social media at Nick underscore Rome. Thanks again for tuning in to Human Factors Cast. Until next time. It, it depends. Spacecraft, railway locomotives, nuclear submarines, healthcare, jet aircraft. These are all examples of highly technical systems and organizations and all have one particular thing in common. They all involve humans. Humans who want to do amazing things and are using technology to achieve them. They all have something else in common. They have amazing people ensuring that the users who are involved can do what they need to do, are safe when they do so, and have the optimum user experience. These people are Human Factors practitioners, and on 1202 The Human Factors Podcast, they talk to me, Barry Kirby, about what they do, sharing their career paths, highlighting their ideas and best practices, and fundamentally raising awareness of our discipline. Find us on 1202podcast.com, on social media, and on your favourite podcast directory, because it's more than just common sense.